Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we are going to talk about electromagnetic security and a new consortium that is starting up to address some of the emerging threats and pursue new standards for industry as a way to provide greater protection for critical infrastructure. With me today is David Tilton. He is the Acting Executive Director of the Electromagnetic Security Consortium and VP of Business Development for the Conductive Group, along with Dr. Nathan Hansen, who is the CEO of the Conductive Group, but is also Chairman of the Consortium. Uh, Nathan and David, thanks for joining me here on From the Crozness. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having us, Ken. Absolutely, Ken. Thank you. We're going to dive into an issue that you know gets a lot of conversation, but I, I have to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about. I think when we oftentimes talk about electromagnetic spectrum operations and kind of related capabilities, our minds go directly to overseas, to peer competitors, threats, great power competition concepts. But the Electromagnetic Security Consortium that both of you are starting up, as well as the field that you're in in terms of electromagnetic security and EP, there's a huge domestic piece to this. And so we want to kind of talk about the whole EP problem, but I know that there's going to be an element of this about domestic EP that I don't think gets enough airtime in in our conversation. So to begin, I wanted to go into why did you feel the need to create the consortium as kind of a response to the growing threat or concern that's out there in terms of EP for both critical infrastructure and military systems? Well, I think that's a good question, Ken. And if you just kind of back up a little bit and think about EP, you know, we like to say that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and effort developing offensive capability and oftentimes the countermeasure is overlooked. Um, and that's true of both, you know, tactical situations and also here domestically. And if you take that and think about what we're doing with uh, critical infrastructure protection and cybersecurity, there's always a lot of attention put on the cybersecurity side of it the data security side of it, the insider threat and human side of it. And often the RF and physical security side gets overlooked or waived or compromised or in some other fashion so that uh, to make it easier, more cost effective. You know, we see that creates a lot of vulnerabilities, not only in the intelligence community and defense community, but in our critical infrastructure sectors, utilities, power, finance, uh, data centers, telecom, et cetera. And while there are certain segments of the federal space that pay close attention to this and they follow the ICE 705 guidelines and Tempest guidelines within the intelligence community, it's often waived and overlooked in defense. And there is really no industry guidance that's succinct and easy to follow and provided to the rest of the defense industrial base and critical infrastructure sectors. And so we really felt that as an industry, we could do a lot more to protect our infrastructure and create market opportunities for the businesses and companies and technologies in this space. 
uh, by forming a consortium and banding together. It's really a highly segmented and underrepresented space in our industry. Nathan, could you talk a little bit about some of the instances that we've seen, you know, in the news even recently where, you know, this has been a, either the issue had to do with a lack of preparedness or lack of capability in, in, from the EP front that may have caused it. I know that there was a solar winds incident. What are some of the other kind of uh, current events that have really brought this issue into focus for you and, and others in the community? Yeah. So, Ken, that's an excellent question. And, and I'd like to actually make it even maybe a broader comment against that as well, too, that explains why we see this as such an emerging need area. And this is really something that all of us understand is the, you know, the universal dependence that we have on wireless communication. You know, 10 years ago, wireless was an option and now wired is the option. And that's a really quick time frame for technology for have moved on. And it's really at a level that even consumers uh, every day, just reading the headlines, understand this is a conversation that translates beyond the defense sector, it turns into a national critical security conversation quickly there, because the more and more reliant we are as a nation on the ability to preserve the integrity of our wireless information, the more important it is to talk about the security of electromagnetics and and how that fits in. So everybody understands that they have a cell phone in their pocket, but we start to then have a conversation about what are the risk vectors to the nation if wireless networks are more vulnerable when they think they are, or they're susceptible to upset, or they're susceptible to any number of attack vectors that can occur over electromagnetic channels. So, So that's my first comment, is that there's really a more broadly understood need case around electromagnetics than there really ever has been before. So circling that back to some of the defense specific components of this, and some of the critical infrastructure specific components of this, you know, there are instances and and not all of them could be discussed you know here obviously you know there's specific instances of of things that are happening and and information leakage and you know the problems that that are that occur with wireless vectors and and it's not just information security and information leakage right it's also the possibility of having systems damaged over wireless channels uh you know, uh, and, and even to the point where there's concerns about threats to to humans as well, too, over these channels, you know, with, you know, we see in the headlines concerns with things like Havana syndrome, and there's still discussion in the community about what exactly is going on there. But, you know, radio frequency, you know, energy is, is a key component that underscores all of these things. So that's, that's really part of the impetus for addressing this. I want to pull the thread on, uh, you're talking about the the EP community and the people working in in that field. One of the challenges that we've always had uh, as a MSO community is that, like you mentioned at the beginning of your answer, a lot of time and attention has been focused on the offensive side. When you think of the quote-unquote warfighter, it's offensive-minded. We have offensive communities that are electronic warfare officers. But when we get into EP, uh, these are more uh, technologies, countermeasures, capabilities that we are part of systems and are baked in at systems at different points in time. And so we don't really have an EP community that we can easily identify. So sometimes it's hard when we're raising the issue of EP to really know who's the right person or who are the right people or the right offices to talk to. Is that the same from your perspective when you're dealing not just with DOD, but a host of other agencies, both in federal government and commercial? Yeah, our, our industry is really a reflection of our customer base. You know, we have a lot of highly segmented agencies that we have to work with. 
a lot of three-letter agencies that by design don't talk to one another or even communicate within their own agencies. So the EEP community tends to reflect that. You have a lot of smaller players, regionally focused, segmented, that have developed their businesses based on past relationships and who they know or their former role within the government. You know, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is difficult then from an industry perspective to unify a voice and to represent the needs of the industry and to help push on standards and adoptions of new technology, which has been one of our challenges at the Conductive Group is to get some of our more innovative shielding solutions adopted simply because, as you pointed out, there is no central belly button. There are some agencies obviously that carry greater weight than others but they're a lot of times making their own independent decisions about what technologies they adopt or blacklist even. So we're really trying to tackle that from an industry perspective and provide what we feel is the right solution to solve these challenges and unify that voice. Hello everyone. I wanna take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. 
no matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Now, one of the challenges, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, kind of getting your message out there, because in the past, when I've been exposed to this issue, or, you know, AOC has stepped into this issue, we've gotten quickly into this discussion where I feel like there's two camps. There's the the, the camp that is either really ignoring the problem or saying it doesn't exist. And then there's this other camp that also almost makes the threat seem unrealistic. Do you feel that there is a need to redefine the sense of urgency for addressing this matter of electronic protect, particularly of critical infrastructure, so that we do not spend too much time talking about unrealistic scenarios that are out there? I think you're right. There Traditionally, there's been a lot of, you know, boy, the cried wolf type activity, especially within the EMP community. And that's good and bad, right? It, it has, I think, in some ways made it harder to cut through that noise to talk about practical solutions. So, and in fact, we are partnering and working with some of the groups that are really concerned with EMP because we share some common thread and, and synergy and vision for what should be done. And, and really the conversation with that community is shifting to practical solutions. Like we know we can't redo the entire power grid of the United States, right? But we can go in and protect the water utility district in Washington, D.C., and the power grid in Washington, D.C., and other critical uh, major population centers, you know, strategically target areas where there's greater population and critical assets that really should be protected. Um, because, yeah, maybe it never will happen, but the day that it does is a, is a really, really difficult day. I mean, you look at natural disasters and what happens when uh, we're not properly prepared and people don't have food and water and how things disintegrate and deteriorate so quickly. Uh, so the event of an EMP is a really is a really frightening scenario that we all hope never happens. But I think there are some practical ways that we can address that. In fact, we're we're co-sponsoring a bill called the Infrastructure Resiliency Act that specifically does that. It targets you know very specific pieces of our infrastructure. We can't protect the whole country, but if we can hit a large portion of the population, that's a good thing to do. We also see a shift within the defense and intelligence community just due to the elevation of our near-peer threats from China and Russia. And we all know they have greater EW capabilities, whether that's shooting down drones or the recent um, demonstration of China's high-power microwave weapon. You know, we know they have capabilities that we haven't had to deal with in the last couple of decades in the Middle East. And so now, uh, we, you know, we've talked to command and control groups that said we're naked out there. Our, our whole command and control system is completely vulnerable. You know, we pushed, and not just from EMP, but from high-power microwave, jamming, other EW capabilities. You know, we spent two decades through the Perry initiative pushing for commercial off-the-shelf electronics uh, to reduce cost and improve performance and all the good things that come along with that. But that also then creates vulnerabilities that if you don't bake in the electromagnetic shielding into those systems, yeah, you have great capability, but you're also very vulnerable. So we've seen this shift in... Uh, folks that are going, oh, we, we really do need to start thinking about EP. We're seeing a shift in the DOD community that normally relies on standoff. They'll say, oh, we have a SCIF. 
but you know what? We're in the middle of a base. We have tons of standoff. We don't need to worry about shielding. We'll waive that requirement. Well, those waivers aren't being granted. You know, there's uh, locations that are at risk of losing their ability to operate because they don't have the RF protection. We also have more and more encroachment onto military bases, especially in the case of the Navy, where that standoff gets gets shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time. We have Chinese buying up land around military bases. So there, there's definitely a, a shift in awareness of the threats that um, we may be facing. And, uh, you know, we're hoping to be on the front end of finding solutions to mitigate those threats. Nathan, do you have anything you, you wanted to add on, on that particular issue? Yeah, actually, I just, I just have a quick comment on this, Ken. There's obviously a reason that both of those extremes you know, believe the way that they do, but they also can't both be completely right. There has to be this common sense middle ground where solutions just simply make it to the field where they need to be. These are the type of threats that are occurring around us right now. This isn't the type of area where we can wait a generation to put a response in place. One other comment I would add, we're seeing that manifest in the Chips and Science Act legislation, for example, where it's a very subtle legal reference, but all these uh, chips foundry sites must be measurably secure, quote unquote. And what that means and how it's being interpreted is that they essentially need to be built uh, to skiff standards. So we're working, a number of our consortium members are involved in Chipsack Foundry construction projects and managing the security aspects of those. And that's indeed what they're doing. You know, they're, they're specking in RF shielding. You know, they're worried about all aspects of physical security from biometrics and access control to RF in addition to making sure that the staff inside are, are vetted and cleared and not just going to leak information out to, uh, to our adversaries. And I think that's really been highlighted in that recent case. And I forget the name of the company, forgive me for bringing it up, but we had developed a new nanometer chip that was the latest and greatest state-of-the-art thing. And uh, right before it was even announced by the company that developed it, China released the exact same chip, copied it down to the errors in the design, said, look at our fancy new chip. <laughs> you know, so how did they get that? You know, that was probably insider threat, you know, to, to get that level of detail. But nevertheless, you know, it's all part of the mitigation strategy. And if you're building something out, you know, the cost to include electromagnetic protection versus not doing it is not that much greater. And it certainly then mitigates that threat. Retrofitting is, is harder, but possible. Uh, so we're just trying to get people to think about this up front, think about building standards in a different way. You know, envision a lead standard, but for electromagnetic shielding, NRF protection, and other aspects of physical security. What was interesting when we sat down and talked about this earlier was, you know, you're you're obviously not just dealing with DoD. You're dealing with multiple agencies at the federal, state, local level, and you know, trying to come up with a, a set of standards that uh, can be adopted and adhered to from an industry perspective. What is your approach to kind of raising awareness for the standards across so many different players at the federal, state, and local level? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that we're trying to emulate. I mentioned one of them a second ago with the LEED standards, you know, having something that's akin to that. Um, but if you also look at what NIST did with NIST 800, and, and we've been in communication with uh, the folks at NIST that helped set standards, um, you know, NIST 800 was a, a pretty well thought out cybersecurity standard. That got adopted into the CMMC model, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification or something. I can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for. But that's now something that's being prescribed and mandated. If you want to be a DOD and defense contractor, you have to achieve your 
CMMC level one, two, or three to receive contracts or to even keep contracts that you have. So if we can, you know, create a standard that, you know, is akin to a building and construction standard, but then can be adopted across uh, these critical infrastructure sectors, that's really our approach. And DHS is another key uh, player in this because DHS has the uh, CISA organization, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, and they define the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. They also, you know, provide guidance as to how they should protect themselves against these different threat vectors, but they don't pay a lot of attention to the physical and RS security side of things. And uh, that's where we hope to uh, you know, partner with them as well as other groups within the intelligence community. Our goal isn't to replace the standards that exist today for the DOD and the intelligence community, but rather create a, a, a parallel uh, industry standard that can be adopted in other areas. Uh, and maybe someday it's, it's referenced or somehow incorporated, you know, what we intend to do certainly meet the requirements of the DOD and, and intelligence community, uh, but this would be a more industry-driven, user-friendly, open standard that others could adopt. So I want to go into the consortium. Could you talk to us a little bit about where the consortium is today? What are you working on currently, and what is kind of your uh, pathway forward for the consortium? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm happy to jump in on that a little bit right here. And Ken, what underscores this? Just to build on Dave's last comment is that there's a number of communities that really need to be starting to have this conversation about electromagnetics. There's some that are already having the conversation about it. We do know for sure that if we just tried to scale out exactly the way the government handles this today, that it just wouldn't work. The infrastructure doesn't line up with that. So it's really been this call to action across industry and across the you know companies like ours and, and all of our collaborators that work in this area to elevate our posture and to elevate the way that we can provide support to the government, but also to all these sectors that we see are going to need shielding going forward. So my favorite analogy for the ES Consortium is that this is a rising tide that is meant to lift all the ships. It's meant to lift the government's security posture. It's meant to lift industry's ability to serve it. And that's the tone with which we take to it right here. And so to get to some of the specifics you know, the consortium is a member company model. So, you know, those that join are our companies and we work to collaborate in five main topic areas and we have working groups that are assigned to each of those areas. And so those working groups are our policy, also standards and best practices, also test and certification and threat vulnerability and countermeasure monitoring, and then directly addressing securing critical infrastructure. And they all overlap each other in these really nice ways while also still having a focus on addressing some of the specific needs that are unique to each of those topic areas. And, uh, you know, so as, we, as we've brought members on board with the consortium, as we've, as we've worked with all of our peers and all those that, that support in this area, it's been a really natural conversation to explain why there's a need to harness our energies and why there's a need to, to get our energy together as industry in a way that we specifically want to collaborate with the government and with academia to start to advance some issues to this and not not just to solve the specific government issues but also in anticipation of being able to address this at a national level yeah i mean i think as you pointed out we're in our infancy essentially you know only having been formed earlier this year and then taking on members just over the last couple of months and as nate pointed out you know we're finding it easy to find an affinity with other companies like ours that say oh yeah this is exactly what i want to be participating in so just through word of mouth and you know very limited 
LinkedIn posts, you know, we're up to close to three dozen members now and growing. And we're sort of preparing for our first annual member meeting, which the Association of Old Crows is so graciously partnered with us to, to help us, uh, you know, launch that. So, you know, we intended to get to that towards the end. So if I didn't steal any punchlines. So since you did mention a couple of things, you know, so that we don't neglect to mention it properly at, at, at the right time, if people did want to learn more about the consortium, you are on LinkedIn, Electromagnetic Security Consortium, and you're having the introductory member meeting at the AOC 2022, which will be actually the first day of our event on October 25th, on Tuesday, October 25th at the DC Convention Center. So there'll be more information on that on the AOC website at uh, event website at 59.crows.org. So you can learn more about consortium or about the event by going to either site there and, and getting that information. So you're still in the early stages, but you know, pretend for a second that you're now coming back on the show next year. What are some of the short-term things that you're really going to put a lot of energy into knock out the early successes for this uh, consortium? Good question. I think first is is building the membership. Obviously, if we don't have enough members, then you can't claim to represent that industry voice. So first and foremost, we've got to attract members and participants that can help us in our mission and help unify that voice for industry. Having said that, we're already seeing a pretty dramatic shift in how we can engage and how our delegation, congressional delegations are interested in speaking with us now that we are a consortium and representing industry. They're a lot more eager to hear what we're doing because now we have multiple members that uh, that they care about uh, getting support from. So that's interesting. We're seeing a shift in other organizations saying, hey, you know, we'd love to partner with you. This is great what you're doing. See a common vision. You know, how can we work together? What we're trying to do next and really kick off at the annual member meeting is get some energy behind our working groups and start to produce real work, get results, set some goals and objectives over the next year for work product and things that we'll, we'll push back out into the membership and into industry. Uh, so we're trying to get a foothold with that and uh, generate you know, some of those results. Where we hope to be ultimately is you know, a consortium that's managing OTAs and, and running larger projects and executing on work that needs to be done, not just talking about it. There's a lot of advocacy groups out there that sort of rattle the sabers about EMP and other things like that. We want to get out and actually just do the work and protect infrastructure. And that's why our companies are joining. They're joining because they see it as an avenue get to projects and to revenue and to make good things happen. And as Nate pointed out, you know, rising tide raises all ships. So ultimately, you know, a year from now, we hope to be saying, hey, we did this. You know, we got our working groups going. We're executing on our first contracts. Our membership is tripled or whatever it ends up being. You know, we're not setting too lofty goals, but that's what we're working towards. Again, step one, build the membership, unify that voice. From there, I think we can do good things together. I think Dave nailed it pretty well there. It's probably just worth adding on as well, too, that in terms of the scope of membership, it's really anybody that deals with electromagnetic issues and critical infrastructure, you know, any anybody that sits in that in that space, be they on the customer side, be they on the provider side, e- even on the R&D side, you know, we're, we're really looking to have an ecosystem that gathers a lot of energy around the way that we can start to address this issue in a much more meaningful way you know, both as a body of industry and as a nation. As we've talked about it quite a bit over the, the, the recent weeks, it's been a lesson for me because, you know, we are much more vulnerable than I think we are even aware that we are in almost every sector. And so trying to get a handle on that and to, to prioritize that is no easy task. 
So there's a whole host of challenges when we talk about this. So what are some of the things that are keeping you up at night? How do we address some of these ongoing problems that we haven't had the, that maybe we're not able to think about fully yet? Workforce development is a, is a big challenge. Workforce development and training and enforcing standards. I think that's kind of getting at the heart of what you're saying. We share that concern as well. I mean, even today, we're seeing challenges in our industry because the folks that are in charge of specifying shielding and then going back in and approving it and certifying and saying, yes, uh, you're, you're allowed to operate, they're not even coming from the same basis of knowledge they're not necessarily being trained consistently. They have different views. One guy may say, I want it this way. Another guy tries to do something completely counter to that. And so we see inconsistency even within the existing customer base within the intelligence and defense communities. So some of our members are actively engaged in trying to help solve that with training and certification programs for the current intelligence standards. And so we intend to partner with them to help train and provide certification and say there's a new technology that comes on the market. We can provide training and certification courses so that installers and tradesmen know how to put it in properly and they're quote unquote certified uh, to install a certain product. A good example of that is uh, Palmer Security Solutions that uh, generate, that they they manufacture, you know, shielded doors, RF doors, uh, soundproof doors, and they have a training and certification program where they can bring in installers and certify them on how to install these doors properly so that they uh, perform as they're intended to in the field. Uh, so there is a big element of that. We've got to constantly work, work on workforce development. Sorry, that sounds redundant, but <laughs> uh, I can make a political comment there, but I won't. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a big challenge. It's also a, a huge concern in the Chips and Science Act. Great, we're building all these foundries. Who are we going to get to work in the foundries? You know, 70% of our middle school kids think that uh, they're going to be an Instagram influencer when they grow up. You know, so how do we start to influence younger minds to want to get into technical fields, to adopt um, a trade uh, that may be critical to national security and infrastructure? It's not a it's not a small challenge. And so I think this problem stem. It's much bigger than we're going to solve at the consortium, uh, but it stems all the way back into you know, what our youth are doing and seeing and aspiring to be uh, and how we're, we're training our existing workforce and, and the folks that are already in the industry and professionals that have been there forever. You know, how do they learn new things? Um, how do they uh, adopt new technologies and get up to speed? And how to do that across an industry is not a small task. Um, it definitely will take an industry to accomplish that. That's one of the reasons why we're, one of the reasons we're partnering with universities as well. You know, we see them playing a role in that whether it's community colleges and, and trade schools or at the university level, really what we're doing spans a, a pretty broad spectrum of skill sets and education levels, whether it's a, a guy out in the field rolling on paint or someone who's setting up the, the whole architectural design and, and shielding plan for the whole facility and everything in between. Yeah, I've got a quick comment here, Ken. One of the things that keeps me up at night on this is that this is the type of area where by the time you've discovered that you've had a problem, it's too late. This is really an area that requires a proactive posture. It's difficult to have a proactive posture for everything, right? There's got to be some lines and some balance in there. So I think there really has to be a focus on solutions that are practical, that are reasonable, that we done quickly. You know, the solutions need to be such that they're in range that we can actually do them. But, you know, the alternative of going without could lead to, you know, some, some pretty bad days. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, today's episode. So Nate and David, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me. 
And again, you know, the, the, the consortium is up and running and you can learn more on LinkedIn uh, by going to the Electromagnetic Security Consortium group page. You can also look into attending the initial member meeting that is going to be held at AOC 2022 on Tuesday, October 25th at the DC Convention Center. And of course, if you have any questions about the consortium, you can contact them directly and we'll have links, uh, all the appropriate links here on, on the episode. So, but I thank you for joining me on From the Crow's Nest and look forward to working with you on this topic. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, appreciate it very much. Thanks for having us, Ken. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guests, David Tilton and Dr. Nathan Hansen for joining me. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please feel free to share your thoughts and recommendations. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.